0: Is there any legitimacy to the claim that Israel's violence against Palestinians and its violations of international law are rooted in self-defense? How can Israel's victimhood narrative be disrupted? Is the two-state solution a viable solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict any longer? What impacts, if any, is the boycott, divestment, sanction campaign against Israel having? on that country's policy. What is at the heart of the Canadian government's recent cooperation agreements with Israel on jointly fighting BDS, and what impact can they have? On this week's Global Research Hour, on the occasion of his Canadian tour, we speak at length to the Director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, Jeff Halper, about the prospects for peace in the Middle East. Plus, we get a perspective from Canadian author and activist Eve Engler on the Harper government's recent overtures toward Israel. On today's program, Israel, Palestine, and the Path to Peace. Conversations with Jeff Halper and Eve Engler. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of February 6, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. You can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News Site. Saying he believes a medical condition gives him only a few years to live, and that he is filled with remorse, Dr. Udo Ulfkote the editor of Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, one of Germany's largest newspapers, said in an interview that he accepted news stories written and given to him by the CIA and published them under his own name. Ulf Kote said the aim of much of the deception was to drive nations toward war. Dr. Ulf Kote says the corruption of journalists and major news outlets by the CIA is routine, accepted, and widespread in the Western media and that journalists who do not comply either cannot get jobs at any news organization or find their careers cut short. Dr. Ulf Kote is the author of a book currently available only in German, Bought Journalists, aged 55, He was also once an advisor to the government of German Chancellor Helmut Kohl. The book has become a bestseller in Germany, but in a bizarre twist, which Ulf Kote says characterizes the disconnect caused by CIA control of the Western media, the book cannot be reported on. That's from the article. Editor of major German newspapers says he planted stories for the CIA by Ralph Lopez, posted February 4th, originally appearing at Reader Supported News. A report submitted to the United Nations Security Council by UN observers in the Golan Heights over the past 18 months shows that Israeli Defense Forces, IDF, have been in regular contact with Syrian rebels, including Islamic State ISIS militants. Citing the UN report, Haaretz, noted that there have been several instances detailed in the report that shows close ties between Syrian armed rebels and Israeli army. A statement issued by a group of Druze activists accused the Israeli government of supporting radical Sunni factions such as the Islamic State, or ISIS, replying to a question by I-24 News on whether Israel has given medical assistance to members of al-Nusra and Daesh, that's the Arabic acronym for the Islamic State, Uh Israeli military spokesman's office said, quote, In the past two years, the Israel defense forces have been engaged in humanitarian life-saving aid to wounded Syrians, irrespective of their identity, unquote. That's from the article, Israel supports Syrian al-Qaeda rebels, including the Islamic State. UN report by John Lee Varghese, posted February 4th, originally appearing in the International Business Times. A consensus-building process to wage war is similar to the Spanish Inquisition. It requires social subordination. The political consensus cannot be questioned. In its contemporary version, the Inquisition requires and demands submission to the notion that war is a means to spreading Western values and democracy. The big lie has now become the truth, and the truth has become a conspiracy theory. Factual analysis of social, political, and economic issues is a conspiracy theory because it challenges a consensus which is based on a lie. That's from the article, What is a Conspiracy Theory? What is the Truth? By Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted February 5th crowd of several hundred people has begun storming the ukrainian presidential administration's office a task correspondent reports from the scene protest demonstrators have penetrated the first cordon of the national guards and are trying to make their way to the conference hall national guards in full riot gear entered a brawl with the demonstrators who are demanding access to tv cameras for a statement earlier Demonstrators demanded the introduction of martial law and resignation of all top law enforcement officials, including the defense minister and prosecutor general. Also, one of their demands is the removal of the 25th Kievan Rus battalion of the Ukrainian armed forces from the area of Debaltsevo. That's from the article, Crowd of several hundred tries to storm Ukrainian presidential administration office by Itar tass hosted February 5th, originally appearing at TASS, Russian news agency. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Well, I'm joined right now by Jeff Halper. He is the coordinator of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions and a leading figure in the Israeli peace movement. He was nominated for the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize and has published numerous books and articles uh, while working tirelessly for peace. And uh, he, uh, is, uh, these articles can be found at the website www.icahd.org. He's currently on a Cross Canada tour uh, in which he's speaking about the, the current situation in Israel-Palestine. Uh, so, Jeff Halper, I've caught him in, uh, in the middle of his tour. Uh, he's currently in Ottawa. How are you doing, Dr. Halper? All right, I'm
1: holding up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. Okay, uh just you do you want to just uh, first of all maybe start off with a, a little bit of a backgrounder uh, why did you choose to structure your activism around preventing house demolitions?
1: Well, we in fact um, are an Israeli peace organization that fights the entire occupation. And we're trying to even be be involved in conceiving what a just peace would look like overall between Israelis and Palestinians. But occupation is very abstract for most people. And so the house demolition issue kind of makes it much more visual and concrete. You know, here's a family. Uh, here come the Israeli army and the bulldozers, and the home is demolished. And what happens to the family? So the house demolition issue um, um, kind of encapsulates the conflict itself because there's a connection between home and homeland. So if you say to people, as Israel has since 1940, since 1948, Israel's demolished something like 120,000 Palestinian homes, about 48,000 since the occupation began in 1967, 18,000 just this summer in Gaza, during the attacks on Gaza. So if you deny people a home, individually or collectively, the messages get out. And so we found that the house demolition issue isn't only a kind of a sub-issue of the occupation, but in fact it's the essence of the conflict. And by helping Palestinians remain in their homes, by rebuilding homes, we've rebuilt 187 homes as political acts of resistance, Um, and by using house demolitions as a way of exposing how the occupation works— and what Israel's intentions are, uh, we found it really a very effective tool in, in making the occupation both, both more clear to people, uh, also to make Israel accountable for what it's doing, because Israel's a strong party. And not only that, but, you know, Israel has framed the whole conflict in a way that it's the victim and the Palestinians are the terrorists. And what you see in the house demolition issue is it's the opposite, and that is that um, only one-half of 1% of the homes demolished had anything to do with terrorism. They're all homes of innocent people that Israel is simply demolishing, either in military invasions or because it won't allow them to rebuild homes. And uh, and so it's a proactive policy of a strong Israeli government, uh, over people who are not terrorists, people who are simply normal people who want homes in their land, and Israel won't allow it. Hmm.
0: And it seems to be a, a consensus. It doesn't matter who gets elected to power. The uh, the, whole, the whole house demolitions and, and the occupation continues. I mean, is there any significant uh, De- deviation between the different, uh, you know, parties that have occupied power.
1: No, no, it's, it's a constant. Uh, whether it's Labour or Likud or any other party, it's just a constant. And it also doesn't matter if you're in negotiations. It doesn't matter how sensitive the moment might be and you're trying to build trust between the sides. Nothing matters. It's an absolute constant. In the last, in the last three days, Israel's demolished close to 50 Palestinian homes. You know, more than a hundred people have been left, much more than a hundred people have been left homeless. It's relentless. It goes on and on and on. And it doesn't only happen in the occupied territory. In fact, Israel demolishes more homes of its own citizens who are Arabs, either Palestinians or Bedouins than it does in the occupied territory. So to the degree that it's a part of an ethnic cleansing process of what Israel itself calls Judaizing the country and taking Palestinian land and either driving them out of the country or driving them into little enclaves in the country, it's a constant with all Israeli governments. There's never been a government that declared a halt to house demolitions. Hmm.
0: And uh, the the house demolitions are exclusively of Palestinian
1: homes. Exclusively, I mean Arab, uh, you know, Palestinian or Bedouins. I mean, now there's less and less of a difference between the two, but um, never ever of Jewish homes. I mean, occasionally you'll have you know a settler will set up a, a shack on a hilltop on top of a, on, on a palace on Palestinian land occasionally the army might come and knock it down. But that really isn't a house demolition. You're not denying anyone a home. It's illegal, the rebuilding, and it's not really their home anyway. It's just another outpost. Um, but So you could really say that the entire policy of demolitions uh, uh, takes place against the Palestinian population.
0: Hmm. Now, what... Uh, as far as the settlements is concerned what is the motivation of the the vast majority of of, of the settlers who move there is it uh is it part of some uh, you know ideological desire to to maintain the a uh, a toehold of the mm-hmm. the Jewish population or is
1: it uh right there's than a that? there's a confluence of interests because on the one hand it's true the settlers go move there and Often, like I said, they build outposts. They take proactive um, actions to take Palestinian land and displace people. Hebron, for example, is hell for Palestinians. And the settlers are, are, of course, protected by the army. So they can do these sorts of violent things without fear of retribution or, or any fear at all, because they have the army behind them. That's part of the story. But the other part is, of course, the settlers couldn't act at all. Settlers couldn't be there unless the Israeli army supported that enterprise. I mean, we talk about settlements. It's not really the right word because it minimizes uh, the reality. It sounds like a couple little shacks on a hilltop. But, in fact, many of the settlements are large cities. Malaya Adumim dumim is close to 50,000 people. Uh, Pisgat Ze'ev neve Ya'akov is more than 100,000 people. You have, you know, these are, are big satellite cities uh, of Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, you know, with massive highways leading in and out. So the infrastructure, building a city, the roads and the sewer systems, electrical systems, the phone systems, you know, the commercial areas, the municipal, everything that goes into a city, isn't done by the settlers. This is done by the Israeli army, or or the Israeli, or the Israeli government. And so, um, and so the Israeli government it partly uses the settlers, the ideological ones, to uh, be like the pioneers in a sense and go into Palestinian areas that no one wants to go into. But, you know, they go in because they want to displace the Palestinians and then they're followed by the government that then brings in larger populations once the settlers have kind of secured the area uh, in some ways. So it's a very organized uh, process. I mean, uh, just today, in the, I was reading in the Israeli paper, another couple thousand homes have been approved in, uh, in the West Bank. So it goes on and on and on.
0: Hmm. Well, could you touch on this, uh, which you mentioned earlier, this, uh, this narrative of Israel as a victim – because it's, it seems to be quite persistent. It certainly was used extensively during the siege on Gaza uh, just this last summer. Um, in fact, uh, the Israeli officials, they, they said they were acting in self-defense by targeting Hamas's military arsenal and rocket-launching sites, and they claimed that Hamas was using Gaza civilians as human shields. Uh, I, I think it's very important to, to kind of you know, deconstruct that.
1: That's so, right. Well, we yeah, because, or we call it reframing the conflict. Um, you know uh, what Israel uh, does is it presents it presents a picture where there's no occupation. I mean, you could actually put the whole Israeli case the way it presents it in one sentence, which is a pretty powerful thing to do if you are on the radio and you only have a couple sentences. The Israeli case is Israel is a small white european so there's a certain racial undertone here it's a small european democratic country besieged by arab muslim terrorism that's it in that in that one sentence you hit every single buzzword and of course the word that's missing from that sentence is occupation so it's all depoliticized you know it's as if in gaza uh, they're just shooting rockets. It's as if there's no there's no occupation of 47 years. As if these people aren't refugees of 1948. It's as if there's no a boy, you know a, a siege on Gaza for the last 20 years. All that is gone, and Israel becomes the victim, which of course dovetails with the whole you know kind of image of Jews as victims. Um, so it builds on that as well. And of course, Israel brings a Holocaust in every, every chance it gets. So that you have a, a weird situation where the reality is turned on its head. You have a, a strong country like Israel with a strong uh, economy. Israel is the third or fourth largest arms exporter in the world. It's the, it's the fourth largest nuclear power. Israel has something like 300 nuclear warheads. It has six nuclear submarines. It's a, it's, and it's the occupying power. The Palestinians aren't occupying Israel. So you put all that power together, plus occupation, and yet you come out as the victim. You see? That, that, and, and your victims, they become the perpetrators. So the whole power relationship is is, is inverse. The people of of, of, of Gaza that have lived under occupation for a half a century, uh, that don't have any food, that can't fish, that are under siege, they become the aggressors. And Israel, which is the occupying power, becomes, becomes a victim. And being a victim is a very powerful place to be, because if you're the victim, you can't be held accountable for what you're doing. You can't, you're not responsible, because you're the victim. So if Israel can combine power and control over Palestinians, with no accountability, because it's the victim, it's home free. And so that's part of what the the house demolition issue reframes, because we show that these are not terrorists, these families, they're innocent people, and Israel's policies are in fact proactive. They're not defensive. They're proactive in the sense that Israel wants to, to Judaize the entire country and displace the Palestinians. So, our reframing tries to counter that idea that Israel's is the victim, and the Palestinians are the aggressors and and invert the picture the way it should be
0: but uh i mean i am I, I can understand where people living who live in Israel and like I hear about how they have to put their children on separate buses because you never know when they're you know when these attacks are going to come i mean they they do feel uh, and whether or not they might have originally uh, been supportive of a particular government they they still f- think I, I can understand why they might feel uh that sense of victimhood sure. are, are, you, are you saying that you're uh you know with the the campaign against house demolitions it's mm-hmm. it's making a breakthrough and i guess interrupting that narrative
1: I hope so that 's what we've been trying that 's why I'm in Ottawa and coming to Winnipeg i hope i can I can break that because if we can't um, it um is a the, dominant the, the conflicts going to go on mm-hmm. look it, just in, in terms of what you're saying, the oppressors the oppressors are always scared i mean they're they're strong they're the oppressors if you If you look in in colonial africa uh, you look anywhere where where you have oppression, uh, the oppressors are always scared because they know that the oppressed people can never accept the oppression they have to resist. Oppressed people aren't going to say the Gazans aren't going to say, "Fine, uh, occupy us, deny us our rights, deny us our food, and you'll be safe to take buses." No, they resist it. You're building as an as an oppressor, as an occupying power, in unstable, unjust, violent situation. But it's not the people of Gaza that are being that have built this situation. It's Israel. That's the strong party, and so. Uh, and so, if Israel wants to resolve the Palestinians can't resolve this; they have no power. The United States supports israel i mean where where the Palestinians, Canada now, you know it's probably the most pro Israel country in the world. Where are the Palestinians going to go, and so they resist, and that resistance that's part of the framing of Israel is called terrorism, and so you end up blaming the the oppress the oppressed for resisting oppression. And, the, and, the, and the, the occupiers, the oppressors, the strong party that have caused this and keep it going, they come out as the victims because their kids can't take buses uh, and not be afraid of rockets. So you see, the whole thing is turned on its head. And what we're saying is Israel is the only party that can end this conflict. The Palestinians have accepted the two-state solution. They've accepted the right of Israel to exist they've reached out in peace and israel wants the entire country and has refused so if these israeli kids if their parents are afraid to put them on buses it's because their government has, has kept this 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 occupation and this conflict going it's not the palestinians fault
0: mm. But uh, there is that, that sense, though, of, uh, you know, I mean, the, the individual Israelis, I mean, they, they're just wanting to live their lives. They have no particular malice against the Palestinians. The, well, you know, that's not mean,
1: true. I mean, that's not true. They're, they know what's going on. We have newspapers in Israel. They know there's an occupation. They know, uh, they know what, what we're doing. It's not a, it's not a secret. So, uh, you know, the point is that they're not taking responsibility they 're the citizens of a country that has a military occupation over over a people that only wants its freedom that 's all the Palestinians want, and they keep electing governments and supporting wars to suppress and destroy that people so they 're not they might be individual citizens, but they can 't claim you know now you 're getting into kind of uh, you know other other uh, places where the Jews were oppressed and the people oppressing them said, we didn't know, you know, we just were living our lives in Germany. We didn't know what was happening. And so, you know, it's a very, it's a very slippery slope. You have to hold citizens, especially in a democracy like Israel, where you, there's a freedom of information. You can know what's happening. You have to hold citizens responsible, accountable for what they're doing. Mm.
0: So yeah, I mean, I I know like he probably on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm wondering if uh, the uh, inability to address the injustice that, that's mm-hmm. taking place. I, I've heard all evil is, is a failure of at least one of two, is one of two deficits, a deficit of imagin of of empathy mm-hmm. or a deficit of information. So or
1: or an interest. Israel has an interest in keeping the occupation. It isn't just a, a, a mistake or a delusion. Or it has an interest. You know, the occupied territory, first of all, is territory Israel wants. The settlers are good. You know, it has 200 settlements, so so it's intentional. And the occupied territory, we have to be honest, is an important part of the Israeli economy. It's where Israel tests and develops weapons and security systems you know israel didn't sign uh, what's called the canada israel public safety agreement where it's involved in training your police and your border controls and your prisons and so on just because it's uh it's israel it has that expertise and it has those technologies of control because of the occupation so it's not only a, a, a lack of imagination it's it's a proactive uh policy because you have political claims and economic claims to somebody else's territory, mm-hmm. and the power to enforce it.
0: Okay, um, could you could you talk a bit about the, uh, the 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 two state solution? I understand that you you don't support that uh, that right. option.
1: Well, no, I, no, that's not true. We, the Israeli peace movement always supported the two state option.
0: You just don't think it's
1: viable. That's right. In other words, we've supported it and. Uh, and really, it's a Palestinian's call. So if the Palestinians support it, as they have, I'm not going to tell them no. I mean, it's their, it's, you know, it's their call. But it's true, I've come to the conclusion, and I talk about this, that it's way past gone. The two-state solution is gone. It's dead. We should even stop talking about it. And it's buried under the weight of Israeli settlements, Um you know, there's no way in, in the world that the, that the United States or Canada are going to force Israel out of these cities of fifty, sixty, seventy thousand 70,000 people in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. It's just not going to happen. And so we have to bite the bullet and say we have two choices. Either we allow the present situation to to, to stay, which means that we accept an apartheid state. Because you do have one state today. Israel is over the whole country, from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River, and it's confining the Palestinians to little islands with no human rights or civil rights. That's apartheid. So our choice is we either allow that to continue, or we go with the flow. Say to Israel, look, you created one state. You, Israel, rejected the two-state solution by your settlements, But that one state now has to be transformed into a democratic state for all its citizens with equal rights. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of a democratic state of equal rights shouldn't be such a foreign idea to Canadians. I mean, you know, democracy is what you guys are trying to promote in the world. Here's a people, the Palestinians are saying, please, we want democracy, we want freedom. And uh, Canada is selling them instead uh, apartheid.
0: You're listening to the Global Research News Hour broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Do you do you have any insights into uh, what the uh, what uh, impact the boycott divest sanction is having? Is it is it, uh, uh, is, is it taking hold? Is it uh, leading to a, in a positive direction?
1: I think so. The boycott divestment sanctions movement, the BDS movement, is very important. We've always supported it um, because it's the way you know states are not carrying out their responsibilities. States say we're responsible for, for foreign affairs, we make wars, we have an exclusive right. But look at the world, the way it is, and look at Israel-Palestine in particular, where, where states like Canada and the United States have allowed this to go on and still support Israel in its occupation after all these years. So at some point, civil society, people... Churches, trade unions, students, university groups, political organizations, the average citizen has to stand up and say, no, we're committed to democracy, we're committed to peace, a just peace, and we're going to do something to push our governments if they're not going to do this themselves. Uh, and, and, And in a way that I think I've discovered an iron law, and that is that governments will not do the right thing period, unless they're pushed by the people. So BDS is that pushing, and I think it is having an effect. Less of a, of a, of a, of a financial, economic effect. I mean, Israel's a, a tremendously powerful country, and, and its military industries do very well, thank you, without BDS. But morally, I think it, I think it, it calls attention to the immorality of the occupation, and how it's structured, and how it's financed. And it gives people, even if you're not buying lettuce from Israel, it gives people uh, an opportunity to say, I'm not going to participate in this. I don't want my country to be complicit. And uh, I think from that point of view, it really is having a great effect in terms of changing public opinion uh, about the conflict, and I think that's what Israel is very concerned about.
0: Dr. Halpert, could I get you to compare the the current situation uh, in Israel with South Africa? I mean some of the uh, right. uh, are, are there extra challenges with Israel the situation in Israel that didn't exist with South Africa? are they th- different in any conceivable way because they both constitute right. apartheid regimes
1: right That's right no, and we make a, a comparison I mean there's certainly not a one to one correspondence, but look essentially. In international law, apartheid um, is defined by two elements. One is separation. That's the apart, Uh, you know, apartheid. So it's when one population separates itself from the others. And then that population creates a permanent institutionalized regime of domination. In other words, it's not discrimination. It's a regime where the way it's structured, the rules, the laws are to keep one population dominant over another. And that's certainly that's completely what you have in Israel over Palestine. So it doesn't matter if apartheid is based on race, like in South Africa, or ethnicity, nationalism, religion, like in Israel-Palestine, or on the color of your eyes. As long as you have a regime of separation and domination that That you can call that apartheid, so we make um, some very clear comparisons between the two regimes
0: hmm. now, I know that we have we uh, we were living right now i mean with we had the nine eleven attacks we've right. got the, the right up to the uh, the whole business with isis in uh, mm-hmm. the middle East and uh, the charlie hebdo attacks boko Haram right. there there seems to be uh, a, an extent to which uh uh islam is being mixed up uh not not correctly in my view but right. uh with the you know violence and That's and bloodshed right. and i am wondering if that isn't frustrating uh efforts to to bring about peace in israel as you know the palestinian right. population much of them are uh you know connected with islamism mm-hmm. and islamic uh terrorism could you uh, speak to that point
1: uh yeah i mean it, you know it, it, I and mean, there's different levels of that. First of all, the Palestinians um, are not really connected with that. I mean, Hamas, which is a, actually electorally is not a large party. Probably 15 or 20 percent of the Palestinians actually identify with the Hamas ideology. But Hamas is the Muslim Brotherhood. It's not al-Qaeda, and it's not Hezbollah, and it's not Shiite, of course. So, you know, Israel's attempt to conflate everything. Netanyahu gets up and says, Hamas is his Hezbollah, Hezbollah is Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda is ISIS, ISIS is the Chechnyans, and it goes on and on and on. It's simply stupid. And, and, not, and he knows it's not true. He knows it's demagogic, demagogic because there's some very real differences um, between those groups. But Hamas is not a part of that whole... A uh, and as a matter of fact, the uh, European Court of Justice just ruled that Hamas, in fact, is not a terrorist organization. So it's being taken off the terrorist list in Europe. Um, you know, it, it's a resistance organization, that's true. And it uses violence sometimes in ways that it shouldn't. It shouldn't throw rockets on, on civilians. That's true as well. But nevertheless, uh, the attempt of, of the global north, including Israel, to characterize all resistance to neocolonialism, to exploitation, to capitalism, to occupation, to apartheid, as terrorism is simply self-serving. And in fact, and in fact, the states, you know the, uh, you, the United States, Europe, kill far more innocent people than do the so-called terrorist groups. I mean, the United States and its coalition of the willing has killed more than a million innocent people in Iraq. I mean, al-Qaeda could never dream of doing something like that. So if you actually define terrorism by killing innocent people, these self-righteous states that are calling others terrorists are in fact, are in fact the perpetrators. And not only that, but a lot of the terrorism, a lot of the violence that exists, uh, as irrational and terrible as it is, is still a reaction to neocolonialism. The European c- countries, uh, you know, set up government, fake governments, fake states, fake borders, dividing people not only in the Middle East, in Africa, in Latin America, and other, pla- other parts of the world that ge- until today are generating conflict. So in many ways, um, and, and of course the, the, the global north is also involved in arming one side against the other, so so you're in a situation where you still have neocolonialism. You still have the global north trying militarily and economically to control peoples. And I think, you know, it's not taking the right form in a way, but I think a lot of this violence are peoples trying to take their lives back, take their cultures back, reorganize their parts of the world the way they want. And they're being... So I, I really... You know, I don't like the word terrorist. It's not a human rights term. It's it's a loaded term. But it certainly covers the fact that the global north, our so-called democratic white countries, are much more exploitative and violent towards innocent people than these terrorist groups are.
0: Now, the, the fact that there's been so much, uh, I mean, we've seen with the sieges in Gaza, uh, and and of course, so the 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 house demolitions uh, throughout uh, I- Israel and the occupied territories. There, there seems to be a. a, a it's not just a, um, that they're uh, waging violence, but it, it seems as if there's they're, they're fostering a, a mentality of, of cruelty and even mm-hmm. uh, racism. Right. Could could you speak to that point? I mean, what, w- why is it that they would be uh, so intense? In their attitudes to 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 marginalize uh, people this way, to to reduce right. them to the, even second class citizens seems a little bit uh, 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 right.
1: considerate. You know what I mean? Well, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, when you're a small, uh, I, I don't think they represent very much. Okay, one sec. So when that, when you have small groups, um, you know, it, it, there's a vacuum here. You don't have. Uh, Normal governments in these countries, uh, uh, you know, partly because, uh, again, the global north led by the United States determined, you know, they do regime change. They decide who's going to be the government, who's going to be the head of state, who's going to get armies. They have no no compunction about arming resistance groups to legitimate governments. Uh, you know, the whole thing is, is completely, um, um, completely turned around in, in the third world. So some of these groups are small groups, and they use violence to intimidate, like all terrorist groups do. Um, and part of that is probably from their weakness, the fact that most people don't support them. But at the same time, they don't, you have what are called failed states, states that aren't able to protect their citizens and move ahead. But that's mainly because they're not allowed to take control of their, of their countries. The global north keeps control. That's why we call it neocolonialism. Uh, so that you have to look at the bigger picture, and these little actors are, in a sense, reacting or they're or they're filling a vacuum. But you're talking about a completely non non normal situation that's been created actually by the powerful countries, the neo colonial countries.
0: Mm. Now, what about the uh, in the region, the the moder the so called moderate uh, Arab countries? Uh, what? Uh... What investment in, in, if any, do they have in the existence of Israel? Because they're often portrayed as uh, wanting to, you know, as part of that hostile force that's seeking to uh, eliminate the state of Israel. What do they have, in some sense, uh, an an investment uh, in 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 maintaining Israel uh, for for uh, in in the name of domestic or, or other reasons?
1: Well, I mean, if you look at it, we talk about the Israel-Arab conflict, but in fact, if you look at it, uh, there's no. If you take out the Palestinian issue, there's no greater f- common foreign policy goals than that uh, than those between Israel and these conservative Arab states. I think Israel is closer to Sisi in Egypt than it is to Canada. It's close to Saudi Arabia. It's close to the Gulf states. It's close to uh, to the conservative regimes because they're all worried about the same thing and that's the people the people and and economic development and uh... you know these are like little puppet regimes of the global north many of them i mean israel not only gets four billion dollars a year in arms egypt gets about two and a half billion dollars in arms from the united states so you know it's it's again this manipulation that's happening that deprives the peoples of the region their right to, to self-determination, to rule their own lives. And so these are all, you know, Saudi Arabia just bought this year $74 billion of arms from the United States. So these aren't real countries. These are gangster cliques that are all kept in, uh, in power by the global north because they're self-serving. And Israel's a part of that. You know, they, they get along very well with Israel. Israel hasn't had a war with an Arab country for, for, for 40 years. Hmm. Uh, you know, and then the Palestinians get in the middle because the Palestinians want democracy. They want freedom. Other Arab peoples are looking to them as a model. And Israel and the Arab governments are very afraid of the Palestinians. Uh, so these, you know, these regimes really don't have much legitimacy.
0: Maybe uh, if you could uh, just give us a, a breakdown of, of some of the main points that you've been emphasizing through your tour. Uh, I know that they, uh-huh. you're talking about the current crisis. <clears> what, what are the main things you want Canadians to 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 talk about to think about?
1: Well, I guess the big picture is that that this is a conflict that um, um, that's not only affecting the, the wider Middle East. Um, you know, and has to be urgently resolved. I mean, John Kerry said not long ago that you're not going to get to the bigger problems of the Middle East, ISIS, Iran, Syria, the whole meltdown in the Middle East, until you resolve the Israel-Palestine conflict. It doesn't cause them all, but it prevents us from going on and stabilizing the wider Middle East. So there's an urgency. But beyond that, of course, this conflict disrupts the entire international community. I mean, Canada is scared of uh, you can't get on an airplane with a toothpaste tube. So obviously, this in all you know Canada is is securitizing, it's inviting Israel into your, your police systems. Your cities are being are being securitized. Um, there's this whole paranoia about security here and militarism and so on. Uh, which feeds into neoliberalism, of course. And this whole, so the whole conflict just feeds into an oppressive system that finally gets to Winnipeg. <laughs> it's not confined to Gaza. There's a real connection. Uh, and, you know, the Gazans are not the end users of Israeli weapons, the, the people of Winnipeg are the end users through their police, through your police forces. And so my message is. Not only is this an important issue to resolve the Israel-Palestinian conflict, but in a global sense, um, resolving this and these other conflicts will go a long way towards securing all our lives in a just way. We have to redo the whole international system in a way in which people really have a stake, people really have freedom, people really have economic ability and, and the world that the global north, including Canada, has constructed is the world of violence and warfare and division and uh, unfreedom. And uh, that's what we have to call attention to, I think. So I see the Israel-Palestine conflict as kind of a microcosm, kind of a mirror of a much larger reality in which Canada is not playing a positive role.
0: Well, Jeff Halper, I want to really thank you for – you've been very generous with your time. Uh, I know you've got some – a lot of things going on today. Uh, Thanks, and um, good luck for the rest of your tour, and I look forward to seeing you when you swing through Winnipeg.
1: Okay, great. Thanks for having me on.
0: We've been listening to noted peace activist Jeff Halper, past nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize and co-founder and director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolition, Dr. Halper has been touring Canada for the last couple of weeks. He will be visiting Winnipeg Sunday, February 8th, and Monday, February 9th, and locations further west in the days to follow. For more information about Jeff Halper and about the tour, visit www.icahd.org. Last month, outgoing Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird and Transport Minister Lisa Raitt signed a Strategic Partnership Memorandum of Understanding aimed at enhanced cooperation between Canada and Israel. These include a quote-unquote coordinated public diplomacy initiative to oppose boycotts of Israel, to oppose those who call into question the Jewish state's right to exist and to work to counter the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. So what is the Harper government hoping to gain through its strategic partnerships with the Israeli state? To discuss this, we are joined once again by Eve Engler. Eve Engler is an Ottawa and Montreal-based activist and blogger and the author of Eight books, including Canada and Israel building apartheid, the ugly Canadian Stephen Harper's foreign policy, and his latest, the new communist manifesto. Workers of the world, it really is time to unite. Thank you for joining us, Eve Angler.
2: Thanks, Alan.
0: So, what exactly is the state of BD- BDS campaign in Canada? Are we? Is it making major strides in your view?
2: It's definitely making strides. Uh, it's. I think in North America in general, it's uh, significantly behind where it is in in Europe and, and obviously uh, other places in the world. Uh, but in recent uh, months, there's been a couple of victories here. There's uh, students at uh, Concordia University, for instance, uh, voted in referendum to support BDS movement. Uh, there's a, a long-standing uh, picket of a Israeli uh, shoe store uh, company in, in in Montreal that uh, the finally forced the the store actually to shut down um uh so there's obviously lots of uh number of unions that have passed resolutions uh you know it's slower moving than i would uh, i would like to see but there is uh there is definitely a um a uh growing uh level of support for palestinian uh human rights and uh and uh, that's being expressed in, uh, in different uh, resolutions and, and specific campaigns targeting uh, uh, Israeli companies uh, uh, complicit with different, uh, um, different uh, uh, crimes of the Israeli state. Is
0: there something going on behind the scenes? Is there an economic incentive here as if these uh, partnerships are a kind of Trojan horse or is it merely just the ideology of, of the government expressing itself?
2: Yeah, I don't think there's significant uh, economic. I think that you could, uh, it's possible that the current agreement on BDS is really uh, seen as a, a sort of way to, in, in the lead-up to the upcoming election, to win favor with uh, uh, in a couple of ridings where there's a significant uh, number of, uh, of Jewish voters. Uh, I think that's certainly a possibility. I don't I mean, at one level... The passing a, or signing an agreement with with Israel to, that says they will uh, will combat the boycott, divestment, sanctions campaign is is completely outrageous. Um, and the idea that the Canadian government would be uh, trying to target social movements and international accords is, is quite frankly uh, bizarre. Um, but at the other level, it's sort of kind of irrelevant. Um, it's 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 just a. The conservative government further affirming that they uh, support all crimes of the Israeli government. They they support uh, Israel's right to to dispossess Palestinians, uh, I guess, forever. Um, um, so it's it's not it's just a it's a ramping up of something that that they've uh, they've uh, been doing for a number of years here. So I, I don't think it's going to have any impact or have very little impact on uh, most. Uh, Palestinian uh, solidarity work, uh, I think it probably does uh, it is somewhat um, uh, it will sort of contribute to a sense of uh, disenfranchisement with some within some of the Muslim community in Canada that uh, and, and make them more wary to to uh, to, uh, uh, to take up the uh, the Palestinian cause and i think that 's been one of the conservative government 's um, Intentions with a lot of this policy, for instance, uh, their role in uh, in labeling Irfan, uh, a, a charity, a Toronto charity, a, a, a Muslim charity, based in Toronto, as a terrorist organization. Um, what, what the point there is, in large part, is to is to sort of scare um, the uh, the Muslim community against uh, against taking up the Palestinian cause. So, so the the recent accord with Israel. Maybe maybe should be seen partly in light of the, 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 the upsurge of uh, fear of of uh, jihadism or, or, or what that the, the Harper government is really sort of going on about. But yeah, I don't I don't think from from the standpoint of um, of the bulk of the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, which is tends to be sort of based around universities and and, uh, and left wing organizations, in Canada. I don't think this has uh, much uh, will have much uh, much impact.
0: Mm-hmm. but of course we do have uh, like there's the recent anti-terrorism uh, bill that was uh, presented do you see this uh, the, the partnership agreement with its uh, you know views on bds as somehow feeding uh, that national security agenda
2: yeah yeah i think it, i think it can i think i think that uh, you know there is a, there's been a, a couple of uh, documented examples where where CSIS Agents have uh, have been going to the houses of of uh, prominent uh, pro-Palestinian activists and have been uh, interviewing the friends of, of prominent pro-Palestinian activists. Uh, so so this would you know sort of continue down that path or, or embolden uh, CSIS agents um, to or RCMP agents to uh, surveil. Uh, uh pro Palestinian activism. I think for sure there, there is, uh, it would, you know, contribute to that. But, but I don't, I, like I said, again, this is just, uh, this is example number, number 20 or more of the Harper government, you know, directly, you know, trying to pass resolution at the, at the House of Commons, uh, condemning, uh, Israeli apartheid week or, uh, you know, their, their, their whole, uh, campaign around, uh, uh, the new anti-Semitism, this is just a, a further uh, example of uh, a long standing uh, um, uh, campaign that uh, that i 'm not sure will have all that much impact um, uh, in and of itself, but you know taken as a whole it clearly is is creating a very hostile climate for those who want to uh, to stand up for uh, to uh, palestinian rights
0: i 'm just wondering if if we are likely to see anything here that that could really uh, bite down that would really have teeth that, that could, uh, uh, you know, t- to seriously, like, you know, especially in in combination with the anti-terrorism legislation. If if, if this uh, a real uh, chill that's uh, th- that we should be worried about, or is this just like a lot of hot air that we can dismiss? Well,
2: I don't think we should dismiss it. I think mean, it it is a chill. This is the, all of these you know pieces that the the, the when when. Stephen Harper goes on the radio and and talks about uh, the new antisemitism that's uh, uh, in some ways worse worse than the the the, the previous and you know referring to the Nazi Holocaust. When he does that, that the point of that is to, is to put chill into those who want to stand up for Palestinian rights and those who want to criticize Israeli policies. That is clearly the point. Same thing with the the parliamentary coalition to to combat antisemitism. Same thing with. Um, uh, you know ceases agents going to people's houses uh same thing with uh, uh, the government's uh, you know denouncing putting out press release denouncing the came boat to gaza uh, and obviously the the this the new legislation around uh, uh combating terrorism or is 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 uh you know they're they're setting up the climate whether they are able to pull it off legally but they're they are selling setting a climate where you know standing up for you know saying thing that uh, that you know, uh, Israel's uh, has much more blood on its hand than Hamas does, which is you know considered a listed uh, terrorist organization. In this, co- this country, which is a you know a, a basic fact, um, to say that is 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 you know considered uh, 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 you know backing terrorist organization. To, to to hold a Hezbollah flag at a at a at a demonstration is is you know providing support for a terrorist organization, and, that, and therefore you get you know you know thrown in jail for that. The the the. Um, that's clearly where the Conservative government is going. Already what they have on, on the list, on, on the books, in terms of legislation, that, that, that you know, banning um, forms of support for most Palestinian political factions. And so the group I mentioned, IRFAN, uh, which is the, I'm uh, um, forgetting what the, the acronym stands for, uh, International for Afflicted and Needy, uh, something like that, the, the reason they got their charitable status cut off was because they were providing um, a support uh, to a to the health ministry in Gaza uh, providing a, they sent a sent dialysis machine to the health ministry in Gaza and they also were providing support to orphans in Gaza um, the money for the orphans went through the post office as is common uh, in many places uh, the post office was run by the by the government in Gaza the government in G- Gaza's Hamas the dialysis machine went to a hospital in Gaza the the, again, Hamas, as the elected authority in Gaza, was uh, running the the, uh, the health ministry. So they were seen as they lost their charitable status because they were seen as supporting Hamas. Uh, and then, when they tried to challenge their the uh, the uh, campaign of them losing their charitable status, the Harper government listed them as a terrorist organization. So this is the first, as I understand, the first. A Canadian-based organization that's been listed as a terrorist—it's organization, it's completely ludicrous. Um, their lawyer, that's that's challenging this, can't even—he—he he can't be paid because it's—it's um, it's unclear if that would be taking material support from a terrorist organization, and then he would then be uh, in in defiance of of the law. So it's all you know, legally speaking, it's all quite a murky territory. But the, the you know the impact is is certain to, certainly to send a chill. Um, particularly, again, within the Muslim community uh, of those who, who, uh, who are, you know, standing up for Palestinian human rights. Um, but, you know, broadly, again, among the population in general, um, it's, a, you know, it's a way of uh, extreme support for the uh, expansionist uh, Israeli state.
0: Well, chilling indeed. I think we have to leave it there. But, uh, Eve Engler, I want to thank you very much for once again sharing your thoughts with us on this uh, interesting uh, political dynamic.
2: Thanks, Robert.
0: We've been speaking with Eve Engler, Montreal and Ottawa based activist and author. Eve Engler's website is eveengler.com. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.